This week on the Backtable Podcast. I used to think that to be the leader, you had to be the best. You had to be the best surgeon or the best scientist or the best quarterback, whatever. I see it differently as I get older. I think the phrase that I use all the time in my leadership lectures is that the leader is not the smartest, the fastest, or the strongest at anything. The leader is the person that can get everyone else to do their best work. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Protect your most valuable asset, the skill and ability to practice your medical specialty. One out of three individuals become disabled during their career. Be prepared by establishing a specialty-specific disability insurance policy from the experts at DI4MDs. They represent all the major disability insurance companies that provide individual policies for physicians. Special discounts are available for all physicians, residents, and the military. Whether you have no coverage, or to compare and improve your current coverage, or take advantage of the new higher monthly benefit, contact them today at www.di4mds.com. Again, that's wwwdi 4 mds.com or call them at 888-934-4637. Again, that's 888-934-4637. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Jay Shaw from Stanford, Department of Urology. Welcome to the show, Jay. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks, Aditya. Super excited to be here with you. I've heard a couple of your episodes and I'm so excited it's my turn to be on here with you. I'm thrilled to have you, Jay. And you kind of think back over the course of your career, there's people that you meet and you feel like they're genuinely interested in you as a person, you as a career. And I've known you now for a decade and I felt like, you know, despite never having been at the same institution, we've been able to kind of form a bond and it's been a real treat to see your career you know, your kind of meteoric rise at the urology level, at the Stanford level, and, you know, kind of pick your brain on things that are worked and, and not worked for you. You know, it's funny to hear you say that, Aditya, because I actually remember the very first time we met. I remember when you were interviewing for fellowship, and I remember meeting all the candidates and being really excited that you might have ended up where I was for your training. And I remember being very sad that you chose to go somewhere else. <laughs> But I have been following your career as well, and it's, the respect is definitely mutual in this regard here. So let's just jump into it, Jay. So, you know, you were a fellow at MD Anderson and, you know, very, very successful time as a fellow and then stayed on as faculty. So maybe if we talk about your career starting out with the MD Anderson days, if you will, could you just reflect on, you know, how that transitioned from a fellow to an attending went and how you established yourself as an attending? Yeah, absolutely. So I, as you said, I did my fellowship training at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. And I'll be completely honest. I had really no connections to the South, to Texas, to Houston before I got there. And I went specifically because of the caliber of training that was available. And my plan was to do the fellowship and then move on 
and go somewhere else, not thinking that I would settle down or, or establish roots there. And for much of my fellowship time, I mentally operated under the idea that this is a three-year assignment, so to speak, and then I'll leave. And ended up, as I guess has been the case at so many places I've been, I ended up forming really tight bonds with a lot of the great people that were around me, both in the community in terms of friends in the town where we were living and everything, but also professionally and academically. I really came to see that these folks around me who have spent three years teaching me would be great colleagues as well. So people like Colin Dinney, who was the chair at the time, Chris Wood, who as you know, recently just passed away earlier this year, Curtis Petaway, Serena Mateen, so many of the folks there were fantastic. And when I had the opportunity to stay there as a junior faculty member, I was considering several different institutions and ultimately decided that, you know, the opportunities here are, are great and I want to take advantage of these. And what I didn't realize at the time was that I had a huge advantage starting out my faculty career that I think most people aren't fortunate enough to have. And what I mean by that is I never had to come in as the new guy. I wasn't thinking about it, but I never spent time trying to prove myself, so to speak. And the advantage that that had for me was that I came in doing things with three years of emotional capital already built up with the nurses and the ORs, the staff in the clinic, with the potential colleagues that I could have research collaborations with. And early on, a lot of work that I was doing was on trying to implement enhanced recovery for our patients with bladder cancer who were having bladder removal surgery, radical cystectomy. And that's not something you can do on your own. You need to partner with the geriatricians and the nutritionists and the physical therapists and the rehab doctors and lots of different people. And I guess I took it for granted how convenient it was that I already knew all of these people as opposed to coming into a new institution. And my mentor, Bart Grossman, was toward the end of his career. He was phasing out as I was ramping up. And that was a really convenient clinical accelerator too for me. Yeah, I think it, there can always be a bit of a give and take. You know, you have the familiarity of an environment. There's always a risk of becoming a quote-unquote super fellow where you maybe don't have the same level of respect, et cetera, as somebody coming in new. It's this weird grass is greener type of phenomenon. But, you know, I, I kind of felt the same way coming back to UT Southwestern. You've got this amazing faculty and there's probably a, some degree of humility when you come into that. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, how do I kind of stack up? And it sounds like one of the things that you did was identify a niche that was your domain, your area of expertise, kind of clinical outcomes, enhanced recovery after surgery, something that you were squarely able to take ownership. Could you just comment a little bit on that, Jay? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit on something really important. I think for junior faculty members, I think you have to find something that you start to think about all the time. We are all clinically doing various operations, et cetera. But I think if you want to establish a presence academically, you have to have something to contribute. So whatever it is, whether it's a specific pathway, if you're a very basic science-focused person, or if it's a specific type of disease, a specific operation, you have to find a niche and spend a lot of time thinking about it 
And early on, you spend a lot of time learning what's already known about that niche and you start establishing mentors and collaborators. And eventually you get to the point where you feel like you're developing new knowledge in that niche. And then people start wanting you to share that knowledge with others, with them, with colleagues, other people who have patients similar to the ones that you're dealing with or have projects similar to what you're working on. And I think that was a really exciting part of my junior faculty development. I'll be honest, when I started as junior faculty, I was trying to continue doing basic science because MD Anderson has such a great setup for people to do the physician scientist model where you can try to have a presence in the basic science arena. And I was struggling because as I'd mentioned a few minutes earlier, I had a very busy clinical practice because Bart Grossman was retiring six months after I started. So clinically right off the bat, I was doing at least one to two cystectomies per week and had a full clinic, et cetera. And in the lab, I was trying to also do basic science experiments. And it wasn't going well because whenever I was in the lab, I would feel guilty that I wasn't rounding on my patient that afternoon to check on them and see if they were doing any better since the morning. And if I added on an extra case or had an extra unexpected OR day, I would feel guilty that I had wasted those Petri dishes that I had plated the day before or the three days I had spent preparing to do some experiments that were now wasted. So there was this constant struggle where I didn't feel like I had an identity. I was trying to do too much. And maybe this resonates for people in a slightly different arena, but I think also applicable to junior faculty where you feel like you have the same struggle between work and home, where when you're at work, you feel guilty that you're missing your kid's peewee soccer game or third birthday party of a friend, whatever. But then when you're home doing those things, you feel guilty that you haven't reviewed that manuscript that you said you were going to review, or you haven't quite gotten to that abstract, or you haven't done that discussion section for that paper you keep meaning to finish up. So very similar struggle that I think junior faculty often face. I was facing in the, the work arena just between trying to balance the basic science and the clinical load. And it was when I focused my niche but saying, wait, I spend a lot of time talking to patients, operating on patients, thinking about the best outcome, what's the best thing we can offer them. What if I made my academic focus that as well? And that's how I landed on doing surgical outcomes work and thinking about, well, I'm taking out all these bladders. I have a whole bunch of patients in the hospital. Why are they being readmitted? Why do they have tubes and lines all over the place? Why do they have complications? And how can I do better? And once I focused my niche on that, everything sort of lined up where my clinical work and my academic work were all in the same facet. And that for me was really helpful to propel my development. Yeah, that's amazing. And there's so much to unpack here. I'm, I'm kind of taking some notes. So the first thing that kind of came to my mind is one of my uh, partners and early mentors, Ganesh Raj, told me, he's like, you know, research cannot be a hobby. He's like, if, if it's a hobby, it's the first thing to go. So true. Lord knows it's easy to add on a case, open up a half clinic, and certainly in the dollars and cents side, if you're seeing more patients generating more RVUs, it's a no-brainer. And I'll even extend it to say that at some point, seeing the patients doing the operations becomes somewhat routine and you know somewhat mindless. It's sitting there having 10, 12 hours in front of you and asking yourself, how am I going to 
productively structure my day? How am I going to force myself to think about things that are interesting to me? That's much more challenging than, you know, autopilot through your 500th cystectomy. That's one comment. And then I think the other one in terms of expertise and developing a niche, I mean, I think this is a part of the maturity of academics. I mean, clearly when you're a medical student, you want to just, it's a volume game. You want to have as many abstracts, papers. It doesn't matter if it's NCDB projects and benign and malignant and men and women and transgender. You just want to have a volume. Then at some point you start focusing, but I, I look at the, in quotes, successful people and they're like, Jay's like a bladder surgical outcomes guy. Brian Chapin's like a, you know, advanced prostate guy. Vitaly Morgulis is like a kidney guy. And and I think to actually reflect on what drives you and not what you should be doing. You know, your example of basic science versus surgical outcomes is spot on. So I, I think kind of coming to terms with yourself and being honest, like this is actually what gets me excited and keeps me up at night is massive and of interest. So you made this kind of transition from the lab to more of an outcomes researcher. You're at MD Anderson. As you start your career, you're three years in. What point did you start thinking that, you know, I want to take on some programmatic or administrative or leadership types of roles while you were in um, Houston? Maybe this isn't the best answer I'm about to give you, but I had not really been very thoughtful about my development in that way, about my professional development in terms of leadership opportunities. When I was a fellow, I was just busy trying to learn everything I needed to learn. And then when I was junior faculty, I was just busy trying to do it. And I hadn't thought much about the happy circumstance that I had that I felt like I had always been very lucky to have really good teams around me in the sense that my clinical team, I felt like was the best team in the hospital. Like I was very fortunate to have the best PA, the best nurse, et cetera. The folks that I had hired for inpatient PA service were fantastic. And about four or five years into my junior faculty time, I had the opportunity to consider being the center medical director for the GU center at MD Anderson, which was a really big opportunity. And several of my colleagues said, hey, you should be the center medical director. And my first thought was, what? Me? I'm just a regular guy. I just show up and try to do a good job every day. Why should I be the center medical director? And then the more I spoke to senior mentors, the more I spoke to other people, the more I realized that the ability to put good teams, great teams together, or take good teams and turn them into great teams was a, a rare skill. And the more I started learning about it, the more I realized that it's something that we can all develop not everyone is going to be a born amazing leader, but I think we can all be better in terms of our range of leadership potential. And I started thinking about it. Like I said, around that four or five year mark, I ended up becoming the center medical director and I started having to deal with problems on a bigger level. It wasn't just for my clinic anymore. It wasn't just about my research project anymore. It was more thinking about institutional programmatic needs. And I really enjoyed that. And Similar to when I made the leap from trying to keep my head afloat as a basic science guy to becoming more surgical outcomes oriented, where I had, I did some formal classwork at the UT Houston Medical School. I, I went and actually did a whole couple of years worth of classes. So when I 
started thinking about leadership development, I really leaned in and said, I want to do this the right way. If I'm going to do something, I want to do it well, which I think is a unspoken mantra many of us have where we can't really just half-ass something. We're all in or we're not in at all. So I started reading a lot of books and started talking to people who I thought were good leaders. And then I had the opportunity to be accepted into the AUA Leadership Academy, which for our listeners, if you're not aware of it, is a great opportunity to learn about the technical content of leadership in terms of negotiation, having difficult conversations, giving feedback, receiving feedback, et cetera. And you get to meet the leaders in the the urology world, which was a great networking opportunity to spend time with the folks who run our society. That was really awesome. And that made me feel more excited to continue developing this part of myself. And as you know, Aditya, right in the middle of the AUA leadership, actually, I ended up moving over to Stanford and made what I guess I would call a mid-career move from MD Anderson to Stanford University. And we can talk about that and the differences between staying at the institution where you've trained, having all that emotional capital that I mentioned earlier from fellowship, and the stark differences to starting at a new place as a relative outsider. Yeah, I mean, clearly a lot of that resonates with me, having uh, recently undergone a career transition, and we'll absolutely kind of jump into that. And you know, I'll just kind of share some thoughts. Yeah, please. You know, hearing your story sounds so so similar. I remember about three years in when I was in Dallas. I was approached to consider being the medical director of our clinic. And it was just such a trip. I was like, you know, what about me is, makes me qualified at all. And actually we, we had some kind of family things that I really didn't feel like I'd be able to invest the effort that was required. But the feedback that I got is that, you know, every staff, front desk person, nurse, they like you, they respect you and you're going to be able to communicate. And you know, it wasn't like I had any formal training in mm -hmm. efficient execution of a urology clinic. And it's the same way for research. You know, one fine day you wake up and you're like, oh, maybe I'm considered to be an expert at some level in this field. It, it kind of happens. And I think if you can develop those teams, as you mentioned, it's critical, you know, getting people together, getting them excited about whatever they do is, uh, you know, a massive, massive skill. You know, Aditya, I want to interrupt you. You said something really important and I want to call it out. You know, you mentioned that one of the things that you heard in terms of feedback, when people were saying why you should consider being the clinic chief or the clinic director was the fact that you knew everyone's names, you knew all the staff and people like working with you. I don't know if you realize how rare that is, where you probably walk in in the morning you have a smile on your face, you say hi to the receptionist and you know their name and you know the MAs that you're working with and you know the person that cleans the rooms because that's just something that you intuitively do. And that's actually something that I intuitively do as well. You know the names of all the people that a lot of other people think are invisible. And that is rarer than you may realize. And I think that goes so far. Just people feeling seen and people feeling hurt, that alone, I think, qualifies you for so much because people will put their trust in you and their faith in you. We were talking about leadership development. I used to think that to be the leader, you had to be the best. You had to be the best surgeon or the best scientist or the best quarterback, whatever. I see it differently as I get older. I think the phrase that I use all the time in my leadership lectures is that 
the leader is not the smartest, the fastest, or the strongest at anything. The leader is the person that can get everyone else to do their best work. And I think some of the ways that you probably do that is, like I said, just saying, hey, Joseph, good morning. How are you doing? You may not realize you walk away and do your thing. And Joseph's thinking, Dr. Pegrodian knows my name. I'm a human being in his world. And that's, that's really powerful. So kudos to you for having that intuitively. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that it's a two-way street. And when I left and it was so hard for me and hard for the staff, part of it is like, you know, you've, there's people that have been here 20 years and not everybody knows our name. Yeah, people cried when you left, I bet. All of us. It was a big, it was a big gooey mess, um, but, you know, a wonderful thing to reflect on. So at Anderson, things were kind of happening. You were there, people had seen your work, they'd seen you develop the surgical outcomes program. You're getting recognized. You're bringing that talent into the whole GU enterprise, if you will. And I think that the idea of having these leadership courses, mini MBAs is pretty ubiquitous now. And certainly I actually left kind of midway through one in Dallas that I thought was amazing. I mean, the books that you read, the personality tests, just the, a reflection on how you interact with people to think that there's not something you can learn formally about leadership, coaching, and so forth is a little prideful to me. Would you say that you're a fan proponent of opportunities that exist? Yeah, I would say I, I am certainly a proponent of that. Like I said earlier, I think not everyone is going to be Martin Luther King, Barack Obama, whoever you view as a great leader. But I think we all have a range of leadership potential in terms of where we can operate. And it's exactly like working out. It's something that you have to see as a way of life and say, I want to be better in this particular arena. And for me, I want to be better at working with people around me. I want to be better at helping everyone be great. So if it's a course that you have access to, great. If you're more of the podcast type or you have a long drive and podcasts are perfect for that, great. If you're an avid reader and books are your thing, if you're more of a direct interaction type person and you want to have a mentor who's a leader that you can talk to and bounce ideas off of, I think the actual method is almost irrelevant. You just have to find what works for you. But I think it's the commitment to developing that part of you. Just like with working out, you can say, oh yeah, you know, do you think everyone should do Zumba? Uh, Zumba may not necessarily be everyone's jam. You may be into Peloton or lifting or rowing or running or walking, whichever. There's lots of different ways to be healthy and fit. And I think there are lots of different ways to keep developing your leadership potential. And I think something important to pause on here is that when people think leadership, I think lots of different things go off in people's heads. Sometimes people think it means you want to be a chairman. You know, for whatever reason, particularly in academics, a conversation that happens a lot during residency, during fellowship is, oh, hey, do you want to be a chair someday? And the thinking there is that that's sort of the only possibility, or if you're really good at whatever it is you do, you're going to be a chair. And I've come to see that leadership potential has so many different outlets. You don't need to be just a chair. In fact, you don't need to have any title at all. If you're really good at getting other people to see the vision that you have, and if you're really good at developing other people. You can have absolutely no title whatsoever, and you can have tremendous influence. In fact, 
my suspicion is that people who have big titles spend a lot of their time trying to figure out how to find the people within any institution that have a lot of influence because those are the people that get stuff done. And often when you don't have the title, you don't have the headaches that come with that title, but you still get to do all the stuff that you say, you know what, that's an important cause. I'm going to try to make that better. And if you're effective at it, you do it, you make it better and you keep making the world better around you for all the people in your universe. And to me, that's leadership. That's the drive. That's what I'm really drawn to. Just making everything around me better all the time, not to get to a certain title. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I think that I'm sure that the people here are already kind of like, oh my gosh, here's another email from Aditya. I'm like, well, have we considered doing this or have we considered doing that? And uh, I think it's spot on. So at Anderson, things kind of organically bubbled up. You're kind of doing your thing. You're formally engaging in some leadership. It's a complete hypothetical. None of us have a crystal ball, you know, what your career trajectory would have looked like if you stayed there. But is it safe to say that ultimately you made a career transition on a high note that professionally things were going well? Yeah, I would say that. Maybe not everyone would agree with that, but I'm pretty sure most people would agree with that. Similar to what you just mentioned, when I left Anderson, I was really sad. I was sad to leave all the people that I worked with and had been learning from for all those years. And it was a big gooey mess for us too. A lot of people are also really sad. And I'm still incredibly close to the people there. Not a week goes by where I don't text, talk, chat, email with one of my colleagues or staff from MD Anderson. Literally not a single week has gone by in the five years since I left. And a lot of times when I have a question about something, they're the people that I reach out to. So I consider it as having left on a high note. And there was a lot of inner turmoil about, do I really want to do this? I've got such a great setup. The institutional leadership has been so encouraging of my development and I can feel they're committed to me. And when I told them that, hey, I'm thinking about branching out and going to Stanford, we had a bunch of meetings and they tried to do the whole retention package saying, well, if you stay, we'll even sweeten pot, et cetera. So I mean, there were a lot of reasons to stay. And ultimately I left, obviously, ultimately Hugh left as well. And for me, even though things were going great at Anderson, the reason I decided to leave was that it was almost too certain what I had to do the next day at Anderson. I had to show up and keep doing more of what I was doing. And this is kind of a cheesy metaphor. I'm a big fan of metaphors, but I started seeing it as everything we do is so fleeting. And I grew up on a beach. So it's about to be a beach metaphor. You know, we think we are really important. We think there's so much consequence to every decision we make. But when you zoom out and look at the entire universe, we are just a speck. You know, there's millions and millions of people on the planet. There's millions of planets in the galaxy, et cetera. So we're just here for, for nothing, for a few seconds, metaphorically speaking. And I started thinking about what we do academically as building sandcastles. And at MD Anderson, I had built a really nice sandcastle. It was beautiful. You could have lots of spires and you could make a tunnel and a moat and everything. But ultimately, the end of the day, the tide will come and it will, it will erase the slate. Your sandcastle will be gone. And I asked myself, do I want to just keep working on this one sandcastle as beautiful as it is? I know the sand, I know the water, I've got a system for continuing to build this. Or do I want to stretch myself and build another sandcastle? 
Can I go to a different beach where the sand is different, where the water is different, where the climate is different? And can I do it again? Because ultimately, at the end of our lives, do we want to be known as someone that built that one sandcastle or someone that was a builder of sandcastles where you knew that you could take him, you could take her, put them anywhere, and they're really great at making sandcastles. And I decided for me personally, the decision was that I wanted to see if I could build a new sandcastle somewhere else. And again, I know this is a cheesy metaphor, but it works for me. Like I said, I grew up on the beach. You know, I, I appreciate it. And I mean, I think, you know, however you kind of phrase it, looking for new challenges, keeping things fresh, making it dynamic, you know, it's always a push and pull. And I certainly had all, all these struggles, you know, things were going pretty gangbusters. One of the things that I think is obvious to most people that have moved somewhere in mid-career where things are going well is you go from being a known commodity, maybe you're kind of a bit of a big deal, whatever that means in your pond, to being the new guy. And, um, you know, I'm still squarely like kind of in that phase where, you know, all the surgeons, you kind of get the benefit of the doubt. People know what you're kind of capable. And then you come in and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to reestablish myself. So maybe let's talk about, you know, kind of attending career part two at Stanford. You know, what's kind of been your experience? Now you've got some experience under your belt, um, everything that's transpired at MD Anderson that all right, I've, I've seen what kind of works, what doesn't work. And these are some of my goals, aspiration to get you where you are now, you know, vice chief of staff at Stanford, again, a well-known commodity within the AUA. How did you kind of approach that? Yeah. You know, I don't think I did it in the best way possible. Not that anything bad happened, but similar to what you just mentioned, when I was at MD Anderson, I had been there as a fellow for three years and then was junior faculty. And when I was making the leap to Stanford, I was already an associate professor. I was the center medical director. I felt respected for my contributions to the national conversation about doing a better job taking care of bladder cancer patients. And I came into Stanford just assuming that I had all the same cred that I had had at MD Anderson and that I had in our urologic society. And I consider myself a relatively humble person, but I realized on some subconscious level, I walked in thinking that I was, I was a fancy new guy who was here to show people how we do things at that premier place. And I think a lot of the phrases that would come out of my mouth early on were things like, well, at MD Anderson, we do this or, well, you know, actually, can we do it this way? Cause that's what I know. That's and just the unspoken assumption in my mind, I think, was that my way was going to be better. And I was going to take all these people and show them these better ways. And they were going to be so thrilled and happy with me. And that was a flawed assumption. I have come to learn that the better way to do it would have been to come in and say, I know one way of doing it. Show me your way. I'd like to learn how you do it here now. And maybe what we can do is find an even better way than either of us know right now and to, to make it more collaborative, to give more credence to the fact that the people who were at a smaller unit still had valuable experience to contribute and that they could help me learn. And again, I don't think I was ever cocky. I don't think I was ever, well, you people are idiots, any of that sort of hyperbolic stuff. But I think I did come in thinking, okay, here's a problem. Let's fix it. 
and I would try to start developing a solution to it without getting input from the whole group. Because at Anderson, when I had a suggestion, people would automatically say, that's probably a good suggestion because I'd been vetted by them over the course of almost a decade. And I got used to that. But coming into a new place, even though you know what you're doing, you have to show everyone else that you're a part of the new team. You can't just be the outsider here and enlighten everybody. There's a great quote that I saw, and I don't remember which book it was. I think it might've been from a book called The Five Levels of Leadership, but it's, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And that really speaks to me. I think coming into a new group, whatever that new group looks like, but in the context of this conversation, coming in as a mid-career faculty member, we are tempted to show how much we know when instead maybe what we should focus on is showing how much we care. And once people feel like you care, then the conversation is completely different. Yeah, I think that's um, incredibly useful. And I maybe wish we'd had this podcast about six months ago. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, sometimes we, you put it as a you know subconscious feeling that we know the best way of doing things is probably there. And there's some value in that. I mean, when you come in mid-career, I think the idea is we want to bring you in for your experience, your perspective, but it's not unilateral. There's clearly going to be things that work, things that can be improved upon unequivocally. And actually, when I was interviewing for this position, I really appreciated this bit of advice from Manoj Manga, who's the chair here, a relatively new chair. He said the first six months is going to be comparisons and a unrealistic nostalgia for your previous institution. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> and I believe it. You know, I, I literally can't force myself to think of something negative about my experience as an attending in Dallas, which clearly can't be completely, you know, in line with reality. The next six months, um, he said, is more of an acceptance and sense of belonging. It's not like me versus the new institution. It's me as identifying with my new institution. And actually, I don't know if this time frame is reasonable, but I kind of see that 18 month mark says, if you haven't been able to make progress and you find yourself reliving the glory years or constantly frustrated, some part of that is on you. You know, have I been able to create an environment where I can be happy and where I can thrive in and, you know, to kind of take it to the next level. And I know this is, isn't necessarily a career transition podcast, but you know, let's roll with that. What are your, what are your kind of thoughts on that, Jay? Yeah, I think I wish we also had had this podcast six months earlier, because this is something that I think so many of us, me, you, I think lots of our colleagues keep going through the same experience and learning on the fly about all of this. I love Manoj's advice to you about the different phases in terms of the first phase just being <laughs> about comparisons and unrealistic nostalgia about what you had and then moving on gradually to more of an acceptance and belonging. I might stretch the timeline out a bit, and maybe particularly with the pandemic, if people are making career transitions during the pandemic, you're not really seeing people. There's no such thing as a happy hour really anymore like there used to be where you can just talk and not be focused on just getting your tasks for the day done. So I fully agree that it goes in phases. And I think if there's someone listening out there who says, well, shoot, I'm at the 18 month mark, and it's not perfect yet. Just don't panic. It takes 
different amounts of time for everybody. We all acclimate in our own particular ways. And one of my leadership mentors told me when I was actually having the same conversation with him about, hey, it's been a year and a half. Why, do, why does it not feel like it's humming yet? He said, Jay, you're new for four years. For four years, you're new. After that, you're not new anymore. So if any time in the first four years, you feel like, I don't feel like everything's going the way I want to, just remember that you're still new. And Aditya, I know that four years must seem like a lifetime to you right now. And you may be thinking to yourself, what? It might take four years. That's super long. I don't know when the switch happened. You don't wake up on you know day 365 of year three and say, boom, all of a sudden, now everything. I think at some point in those four years, things start to fall into place. But the same characteristics that allowed you to rise to the place that you got to at your first institution before you made the mid-career jump, those characteristics are still within you. And as you mature and settle in, you're only getting better. So I think ultimately you'll be just as effective. You don't know what your career is going to look like. You just know what your career looked like at the last place. And that's the only frame of reference that you have. So you keep trying to retrofit your new environment to what you know. And you kind of have to let go a little bit and say things are going to look different. And it's not necessarily worse because it's not what you had before. In fact, very often, I think it ends up being better. I never would have guessed at MD Anderson that when I left to go to Stanford, that I would eventually be the chief of staff of Stanford Hospital, that I would have such a visible and impactful opportunity at the institutional level. And that was something I couldn't have planned for. And if I had been trying to recreate my MD Anderson existence at Stanford, I think I would have missed these opportunities to develop in this whole way. So when you came to Stanford, maybe we talk about aspirations. Did you have a plan that, you know, I kind of want to get in, involved with administration in a big way, whether that's at the departmental level or whether that's at the institutional level? You know, maybe clearly there's going to be some combination of things that you did, serendipity, opportunities, et cetera. But maybe we could just talk a little bit about your contribution into making this happen, which is, you know, remarkable. And of course, as the, you know, urology community, when we see people like David Miller as the CEO of the Michigan system, and we saw Bob Uzo, the chair of surgery at Fox Chase, and of course, at Memorial, you know, we're also proud of Peter Scardino being the chair of surgery. I think we all love it when we see urologists kind of transcend that pinnacle of department chair. So perhaps you could just talk a little bit about, you know, what you did proactively to kind of make it happen at Stanford. Yeah, sure. As I mentioned earlier, towards the end of my time at MD Anderson, I had gotten very interested in leadership development. So in the negotiations with Dr. Isla Skinner, my soon-to-be new chair at Stanford, I had said, you know, one of the things that I'm sad about leaving MD Anderson is this opportunity to develop my leadership potential. And she said, Jay, that's not an MD Anderson thing. That's possible many places. In fact, we at Stanford have a lot of different leadership opportunities, and I'd be happy to nominate you for them if you're genuinely interested. And I said, yes, ma'am, I sure am. So my first couple of years, I was able to continue with that development, taking formal coursework beyond just the AUA Leadership Academy, which is you know, a couple of weekends. Th these were more extended over six months, nine months, et cetera. 
And the most impactful of those was an 18 month course where you had an executive coach and we met every month with our group of, of 15 or so other folks in the leadership academy. And it was one of those things that helped me learn about everything that we're discussing here in terms of distilling my ideas of what leadership meant. And the funny thing is, one of the conclusions I came to was that I didn't need a title. And I said, you know, I'm not going to go searching for a title. I'm going to try to just figure out how I can be the most effective possible, not just in the OR, not just in clinic, but also with the team building around me. And ironically, within a couple of months after that, I was nominated to run to be the next chief of staff of Stanford Hospital. So right when I started telling Isla and other people, I'm not looking for any titles, I'm not looking for any titles, don't worry, I'm not going to interview for any chair positions when they call and happy just to keep developing myself. And then four months later, I found myself on the pathway to becoming an institutional leader. And I decided to embrace that. I said, you know, I think I can contribute to making Stanford a better place for all the physicians, all the APPs for everyone to work. Why do I only want my little clinic team to be awesome? Why don't I try to do it on a larger level? Yeah, I think that's amazing. And certainly more than I think we could ever hope to unpack in 45 minutes or an hour. But I do think the coursework is invaluable. The content, you know, setting aside time to invest in interacting with people, ways people process information, conflict resolution, and even advocating for yourself. How do you tactfully let people know that you're, you have something to contribute? And I mean, at some of those courses, it was, I always thought amazing to hear people just talk about the nitty gritty. I mean, your signatures of your email, like how pronounced they're going to be or not going to be. Or when you introduce yourself, you say, Hey, I'm, Hey, I'm Jay Shaw. I'm one of the urologists. Or you say, Hey, I'm Jay Shaw. I'm chief of staff at Stanford. And these are just things that I think we don't like to think about. I think all of us have maybe some degree of humility and you're trying to sort out how you present yourself. But in the half semester courses I took, I was just, you know, mind blown at the end of every, you know, four hour period once a month. And, and I was happy that I carved out that time for me to grow and read things that probably wouldn't have just stumbled across on myself. And then clearly that does have you kind of bumping shoulders with the who's who. And that probably inherently also opens up some opportunities. Yeah. You know, I've got two thoughts on that, Aditya. The first thought is, as you know, I'm a big fan of these courses, but I think a course by itself is not enough. I think it requires a shift in your thinking about the course. I know people who have sat next to me and taken some of these leadership courses. And when we talk a year or two later, it's as if they've gotten nothing out of it. And they say, eh, it wasn't that helpful. I didn't. But that's because they were kind of doing it as a hobby, as Ganesh you know, mentioned earlier. They weren't really fully diving into it. And my second comment to what you said about some of the nitty gritty that you get into in terms of what are the nonverbal cues that you're giving off? What are the subtle messages that you send every day that decide if you're trustworthy or not, et cetera? To me, it's time for another cheesy metaphor. Something that, that you know, speaks to that is so many of us, when we're giving a presentation, Ness, our AV technician, and I were talking about this before the podcast, we will spend days, weeks sometimes, 
preparing slides and looking up papers and making sure we know the data on a particular project that we're going to mention in our talk. And we won't take the time to think about what do I sound like? Is there backlighting on me when I'm presenting this? Or we won't think about actually rehearsing the presentation. We're so busy, so focused on the technical parts that we miss the adaptive relational opportunities. And I think for the leadership development, these courses help you tune into a lot of that. We spend decades learning how to take care of patients, but rarely do we stop to think about how is the way that I stand when I talk to people impacting how they hear my message? And they think whether they decide that I'm isolated or I'm unapproachable or I'm warm and receptive. And these little things are important. Yeah. I just thought of a couple of things that I had the good fortune of doing. One was I had a leadership coach observe our lab meeting and then him and I debriefed afterwards. And it was incredibly valuable. Just uh, a video recording during like a patient interaction. Then you go back and watch it. And the other thing that just kind of jumped out is at the AUA, I don't even know if they still do this. They used to have a speaking coach where you would basically, this is, you know, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago when I did it, they would literally just take a video of you giving a presentation and then make you watch it. And that was probably worth the coaching in and of itself to see your eye contact and shuffling and shifting. But, you know, I think it's this idea of, of buying into it, you know, personally listening to the information, actually trying to inculcate it into what you're doing, you know, whether that's a capstone project or sitting down and, you know, debriefing with others. Because if it is just, I read this book, this article, it was cool. And here's imposter syndrome and without reflecting on it, really engaging, it becomes a bit of a, a waste of time. So I totally hear you on that. And I guess, you know, just kind of hearing your story, which is amazing. I mean, so much of it's going to be, this is cliche is what you put in is what you're going to get out. And I'm sure there's things that came across your plate. They weren't just like, all right, Jay, one fine day, let's make you the chief of staff. There was probably things that you did on the urology side or the clinic side or the hospital side, or, or if you were offered a position or a role and you kind of gave a half-baked effort, that was probably noted. But if they're like, hey, why don't you look at clinical documentation integrity, which we all kind of cringe at, but you're like, I'm going to knock this out of the park and we're going to change our coding and our billing and our documentation. And your, your product kind of speaks for you. Mm -hmm. That gets to the sandcastles. Every sandcastle you build, if people start to realize that no matter what project or what little cringy task, mundane, inane project, whatever, if I give that to this person, I know they're going to knock it out of the park. Then people want to give you bigger projects. They want to give you more impactful things because they see that, that you're going to do it. There's a phrase I heard somewhere. It's be the CEO of everything you do. And I say that to my kids all the time. No matter what it is you're doing, if you're just unloading a dishwasher, unload it like you're the best gosh darn dishwash unloader in the world. You know, if you're sweeping the floor, making the bed, whatever, because people see that. People judge us all day, every day. We may not be aware of it. They may not be aware of it, but there is constant assessment going on in both directions. So to wrap it up in a nutshell, just be awesome at everything you do or try to be awesome. And be humble enough to know that you're not awesome and that you're just trying to be better all the time and be open to feedback when 
you get a signal from someone that suggests that, okay, you're not awesome at something saying, okay, thank you for letting me know that. I hadn't realized that. Now I'm going to try to be better about it. And especially when you make that mid-career jump, you have many opportunities to get that feedback <laughs> where people will tell you, here's how you're not awesome. I know you think you're a hotshot. Here's how you're not quite the hotshot. And those are valuable opportunities to learn. So see them for what they are as those opportunities. I love it. Yeah, I'm going to tell my kids that to be the CEO of unloading the dishwasher <laughs> for sure. So, you know, the AUA is the other aspect of this that we haven't really delved into. And I'd at least like to get some advice, you know, maybe from, because I think it can be incredibly rewarding to give to that organization, that society and receive. And whether that's the AUA or the SUO or SUFU or Society of Women in Urology, I mean, there's so many Society of Pediatric Urology, I think they can be these distant entities that put on a conference or they can be, you know, an immense source of personal and professional satisfaction. And I would say on the AUA side, I haven't gotten fully immersed, but I maybe appreciated how valuable it could be when I did an international exchange program to Brazil. And, you know, again, the reality is I think that there is a finite network of people that are you know, involved like the leadership academy that you, that you kind of talked about, but perhaps just like a, and I know it's not prescriptive, like a path to somebody starting out, like how to get involved and go through that process, whatever that may look like for you to make it professionally and personally um, fulfilling. Yeah, sure. I would love to talk about that. Obviously for everyone that's in urology, you went through at some point when you were a medical student, you went through the decision tree of what field feels right to me. And we were all drawn to urology. I know for various different reasons, but some of the things that you always hear from students that I think resonates for all of us is that it's a really great community. Urologists are generally really happy and they're really forward thinking. And it's just, people say, I loved my time on my urology rotation. The residents seem like they're having a good time. The attending seem like they're having a good time. And the field is relatively small. There's not that many people. So when you start thinking about institutes or organizational societies like the AUA, the SUI internationally, SUO for us in urological oncology, it's a relatively small, pretty tightly knit group of really good people. And these are people who I don't think are necessarily just looking for titles and accolades. The more I get to know people who are in important positions within the AUA, for example, the more I realize that most of these people are doing it for the right reasons. And they're more than happy to see other young people also want to carry our community forward. So I think if you're young and you want to feel a sense of belonging, I think getting involved with the AUA is a great way to do it. I think talking to the people at your institution who are mentors, your chairs, other senior members of the department, and saying, hey, what opportunities do you think would be good for me? And you have to ask people that know you, saying, what do you think would be good? And I think if you can get on as mundane a committee as it might seem, but something, and actually be engaged in it and say, okay, we're going to, I'm going to learn about MIPS. I'm going to learn about whatever this committee is working on. And you start engaging in that same way, just like we were saying at your institution, people know no matter what project they give you, it's going to be a good product, or you're going to apply yourself in the right way. 
the same applies to our societies and people start taking note of you. And it is a fairly small group. I've come to realize that people have been watching my career and silently been rooting for me that I hadn't even been thinking of. I did a one month sub internship at UCLA when I was a fourth year medical student at Columbia. I did my July rotation there. And Mark Litwin was a younger faculty member there. And he was the one in charge of the fourth year students. And I went to clinic with him once. I was in the OR with him once or twice. And then I stayed at Columbia and I just was doing my thing. And he and I had a conversation at the AUA maybe four years ago, five years ago. We just happened to be sitting next to each other. And he said, you know, Jay, it's been really refreshing for me to watch your career unfold the way it has. And I'm really proud of you. And I was blown away. I mean, Mark may not even remember that conversation, but I was sitting here thinking this person that I see as, you know, one of the paragons in our field has been observing my career and he's happy for me. He's proud of me. And I'm sure when I submitted some abstract or some grant or something, he had seen my name. He had clearly been watching. Just like Aditya, I'll be honest, I reviewed your application for the academic exchange program. There are lots of people who are looking out for our field. So if you want to get involved as a younger faculty member, I think you will see that there are people who want you to do well. And they have a slightly different perspective on things if they're from outside your institution. For me, when I was thinking about leaving MD Anderson, I had so much fear. Can I actually exist outside of MD Anderson? We always talk about the golden handcuffs of MD Anderson because it's so good you can't leave. And I needed to talk to senior members and other colleagues of mine who were at other places, some who had trained at MD Anderson and left said, Jay, you can do it and you're ready and you're not going to regret it. And I really appreciated that. And that was from the connections that I had made from the AUA, from having these networking opportunities that I had taken advantage of. That's great, Jay. And, you know, I, I totally hear you on that. And it's really a source of professional joy. You know, when I, when I first moved out here, a couple of folks reached out that, hey, we're having these conferences or do you want to get involved with the Western section? And it's like they know what's going on in your life and they somehow want you to feel welcome and a part of your new gigs. And it's, it's just such a nice thing. And I am getting to that point now where I, I just take such a tremendous pride in seeing what residents or fellows or anybody that I've had a bit of a part in their training. And sometimes it is you sit down with somebody next to somebody at the SUO and you're chatting and may not have anything to do with them or you interview them once upon a time. And just to see them do their thing is, is wonderful. And I think to be able to take that joy in other people's successes is actually going back to exactly what you're saying. As a leader, you're inspiring people to do their best. And when they get recognized and they're taking their stuff to the next level, that's kind of a success for all of us. And it's kind of a part of our legacy which maybe is a little less fleeting than the sandcastle that comes and goes. Right. Yeah. Well, Jay, I mean, this is amazing. And, you know, all joking aside, I wish I'd have somehow put this one on the books about six months prior. But, you know, maybe any, any just kind of parting thoughts, two observations that I've taken away from this are it's okay to not have a plan to become a leader. I think if you you work hard and and participate and galvanize teams that can do it. If you have any interest, coursework and sincere engagement and implementation of that coursework is useful. And then 
like you said several times, you know, there's no one size shoe fits all when it comes to leadership, you know, whether that's leading your team in the lab or leading an administrative team, or by definition, you're a leader, whether they're in the OR or in the clinic, you know, there's a team that's in some ways looking up to you, but find out what that means for you and just do your best at it. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of parting thoughts, if I could leave one parting overall message here is I think as we navigate both institutional and organizational leadership opportunities, as we think about mid-career transitions, et cetera, the one thought I would want to leave everyone with is learn to see leadership not as something glorifying, but see it as an opportunity for service. And whatever it is that you do, just think about how can I better serve the people in my sphere here? And I think naturally, if you start to do that well, you will start growing as a leader. You will start having more influence and then you will have more agency to decide in what ways do I want to apply this skill set? Do I want it to be at my institution? Do I want it to be at the AUA level? Do I want it to be in some other form? But whatever it is, I think if you focus on seeing it as service, everything else will fall to place a little bit more easily. Yeah, it's a, I think a refreshing, humbling way to think about it. I think if it's the opposite, where if you see it as titles, positions, power, most of us would probably agree that it's not really a meaningful life goal to just have the title without, you know, the kind of meat on the bones, if you will. Yep, absolutely. Well, Jay, thanks, man. Really enjoyed it. I mean, it's kind of a discourse on just careers, transitions, perspective, reflecting, and, you know, congrats again on what you've done thus far and certainly looking forward to, you know, what the next chapters bring. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for this great conversation. Congratulations to you on on your mid-career transition. Hang in there through the rough parts, enjoy the highs, and feel free to reach out because I think I still reach out to other folks that are more senior to me. So as you're going through this, similar to working out, you never stop. Something you do forever. So if I can help you and as you continue your development, it would it would bring me joy. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.